Welcome to Icons in the Making. I'm your host, Heather Stern, CMO at Lippincott, the creative consultancy behind some of the world's best brands. Join me as I sit down with the leaders of today's most influential brands. You'll hear stories of transformation and walk away with a new perspective on what it means to be an icon. This is Icons in the Making. Today, I'm speaking with Aude Gondon, the first ever global chief marketing officer at Nestle, the world's largest food and beverage company. In this role, she oversees Nestle's 2,000 brands across 186 countries, has brought together the marketing and digital teams into one, and recently led the charge on Nestle's 2050 sustainability roadmap. She's a true global marketer, having worked for some of the world's most admired companies like Google, P&G, and L'Oreal across five continents. But above all, she's deeply passionate about using her platform to build a better future, more equitable, sustainable, and purpose-led. There's so much ground to cover, so let's get right into it. Welcome, Ode. Hello. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Well, let's start with the question that's on everybody's mind. Why does Japan have so many flavors of Kit Kat, from matcha to baked potato (laughs) and cough drop flavor? I'm asking the same question. Uh, (laughs) Kit Kat is really an iconic brand in a lot of markets and definitely in Japan. And it's an example of some of the leadership we have in our various markets. And Japan and the Japanese team starting to, to play with different versions of Kit Kat, which really became a big success. And from that idea, they basically starting to develop new product and created the Kit Kat chocolatey, where you have some absolutely incredible, very high-end versions of Kit Kat. And so they renew every season and every year their offering, and they have some of the best range of Kit Kat in the world, which is actually having success outside of Japan. We know that a lot of consumers are actually going into the different Japanese areas in big cities, the Japanese supermarket, where you can find some exports of our Japanese Kit Kats. Do you have a favorite flavor or do you prefer just the original? So I love the original. I think it's one of the best confectionery product that exists in the world right now. I also really love the green tea version. Perfect. Well, next time we'll do this over green tea, Kit Kats and coffee. <laughs> With pleasure. So My gosh, you have such a big multifaceted job and we'll get into some of the bigger initiatives that you're leading. But in terms of our listeners getting a peek inside your world, I know no day is the same as the last or the next, but what's your day like today? Every day is different and it covers a lot of different subjects, but also a lot of different teams. And that's what I think I found exonerating that job is I may have a meeting with the teams from the Philippines and then one from Nigeria, and we may be talking the next five years, digital roadmap and what are the infrastructure we need to build with the IT team. It can be a meeting on a sustainability roadmap or on our nutrition roadmap. And also, of course, with all our partners, all our agency partners, all our media partners. So every day is very different and every day brings some kind of new interesting subject and challenges. What's the team structure like? There's 2000 brands in the portfolio. How do you lead marketing at such an incredible scale? And can you talk a little bit about the overall infrastructure in terms of what's centralized, what's decentralized to the countries or to the brands? 
Yeah, so Nestle is a very decentralized company. So we are working across 10 different categories across 186 markets. And so the markets do a lot because each market has a different portfolio of brands. Like not every brand or every category is actually present in every market. And that is really important to understand Nestle. So depending from which country you know Nestle, you may have an understanding of the company as it's a chocolate and coffee company. For another country, it could be a dairy and a infant nutrition company and a food and a pet care company as well. So every country has a different kind of mix of brands and categories. Then we have zones. So we have five zones. We have Latin America, we have Europe, we have North America with the US and Canada. And then we have AOA, which covers the Middle East, Africa, and Southeast Asia and Northeast Asia. And then we have the last zone is obviously Greater China. And then in the central team, we have category units. So the different categories I was mentioning being Nestle Health Science, food, dairy, beverages, waters, and confectionery, and so on and so forth, are in the center. Then you have what we call the function global teams. So marketing is a function global team. The function teams are here to really develop all the vision and also develop a lot of the processes. While the zones are really about making sure that they can support the market and accelerate. So making sure that we have the right brands, that we have the right product offerings. Even a global brand may have a different type of SKUs or even sometimes different recipe from one market to the next. Mm. So what we do is we really adapt. You know, at the end of the day, food and beverages can be very local, local taste, local habits, but also local nutritional need. So for example, if we know that in a market, there will be a deficiency in iron, for example, we would make sure that we would enrich some of our product with iron to be able to actually cover the needs of the local population. So that's up to the level of details that we go into in offering from one market to the next. It's a level of localization that I certainly have never thought of. You think about different cultural sensitivities, but really getting down to the science of it is pretty amazing. Yes, and it's something that the company is very proud of, and it's historically always been the case. We have more than 200 factories in the world, so we actually have factories everywhere, and we have more than one factory in any given market as well, which really enable us to produce pretty close to the markets, but also that's what gives us the flexibility to really have very different type of SKUs and very different recipes so we can be as close to possible as the needs and the taste of our consumers. That is what set us apart from a lot of the big food companies. So it almost seems obvious that you would have a central global CMO role, but this is a first for Nestle. Tell me about what intrigued you about that and how the shape of the role and measuring the impact of the role has evolved since you took the helm? Yes, it's part of one of the challenge and the opportunity that really interested me. It was the time where Nestle was really thinking before you had 
what they called e-business, which was a bit of the digital capabilities, and I would say more kind of pure traditional marketing separated into two different teams. And the idea was really to develop a new team which would really embed the food funnel of marketing. So coming from consumer research to design to brand building to obviously media practices and so on, as well as building data analytics, audiences, and all link obviously to e-commerce. And so that was a big shift for Nestle to kind of to step into. And I think the big challenge was to potentially get lost into a lot of different subjects because it's a lot of different kind of teams within a team in a way. And as you said, not being very clear on how do we look at success and what are the KPIs. And so one of the things that I quickly did was look at, okay, where can we make a difference? Where can we have an impact? There's plenty of subjects, but what are the key ones where we believe we need to step in and accelerate? And obviously, digital was one of them. We clearly set up a roadmap for us, which obviously is an official one because we shared with our investors where we want to have 25% of our sales coming from online. We want to have 70% of our media investment being online. And we want at least 400 million of first-party data. And as soon as you build this type of five-year objective, it really helps then to look Mm -hmm. at, okay, we are an FMCG company, we have brands, and so what do we need to do to be able to deliver on these big objectives at a global level, at a zone level, and at a market level. And so that's the way I would focus to make sure that it was simple enough and clear enough that the whole organization knew what we were trying to achieve. That's fantastic. And obviously, a lot of it is about future-proofing the company and taking a lead there. Prior to this, you were at Google and would love to hear what that experience was like because you were in a number of different roles, but things that you've drawn on from that experience in this new role. Yes, the five years at Google were fantastic to really understand the digital platforms and the products, the world of data as well, but also to be very, very KPI-driven. It was a fantastic school for that. I kind of knew where data was going. I was working on Android and Google Play and Chrome as some of the brands I was leading there. So the whole future of cookie-less, of first-party data and so on was obviously at the heart of everything that I was already working on. Mm -hmm. So that I knew of where the future was going to lead us and what kind of new era of data and digital we were entering. And then the ability to really have a clear plan and put a plan with clear KPI that you can track, because that's where obviously Google as an organization is fantastic at really helped me. And so that's definitely what I took from my years at Google. Every organization has a unique culture. There's been a lot that people talk about with regards to Google's culture. Tell me about the differences from going to Google to going to Nestle and what would you say surprised you? Yeah, it's interesting because I discovered some commonalities that I would have never expected. One of my biggest surprises when I joined Nestle was the spirit of entrepreneurship. Again, because you have a lot of different opportunities, there's a lot of markets, a lot of brands and so on. The company is actually amazing at giving the freedom 
if you have a great idea to work on the idea and really to launch it. And so that's why we have so many brands and so many products as well, is because if it makes sense for a business or for a consumer, then there's no problem in doing it. And so that was for me the biggest surprise and one of the closest things that I had with Google, which also had a real kind of entrepreneurship, kind of startup spirit. The big difference is first the maturity of the company. So I had the joy of being the witness of the 20th anniversary of Google, while Nestle has existed for 150 years. Mm. So that already makes a big difference because it means that a company like Nestle has been developing through so many changes in society, in the world, Obviously, wars, because, you know, being a global company, you can imagine, you know, there's always been conflicts. Well, obviously, Google is still at a very, very early age. There's a very big difference on the past experience, what the company has already gone through, the different changes and challenges. And then, obviously, it means that at Nestle, you have some people who have gone through their whole career at Nestle. Mm-hmm. So you see experienced and expert employees of the Nestle culture who also have been working in very different type of jobs because that's one of the things that Nestle also does is it really provides opportunities to employees to be able to go from one job to the next and really have a career which is pretty broad and also different markets as well. So you meet Nestle people who have had incredible careers, who has been the past 40 years going through the five continents that obviously at Google, because of the newness of the company, you don't have that. So that's been the big difference for me. Well, it's interesting because you talk about that legacy and that history having grappled with so many things. We've often used the term unprecedented as we talk about this day and age. There is, I'm sure, something comforting the fact that this organization has seen similar times and struggles. That said, you did start this role in 2020 and between the global pandemic and war and issues around supply chain and a focus on the climate crisis and sustainability. I think you've had your fair share of (laughs) challenges and issues that you could have never anticipated. Tell me about that and how it's been to lead during this time especially in a role that really is being formed as you go? Yes, I think like everybody else, it's been a never seen before times. I think even though Nestle has had these years of experience, I think nobody had a global pandemic before. So Mm -hmm. that definitely was a new. And of course, as you mentioned, there's been a lot of other challenges. So I joined in July 2020. I was taking over two teams, as I mentioned before, and merging two teams into one at a time where we couldn't be 100% in the office. So that was a bit of a challenge because I met a lot of my teams through Teams first. I didn't see them interact with each other. I think when you start in a new company and you lead a new team, being able also to see the human connection within the team is very important. And that's something which I didn't have the chance to see I saw a few of them interacting with each other, but I never saw the whole extended team. So I spent a lot of time making sure that I would understand their career, what they like doing, where they wanted to go. So to really have an understanding of each individuals. And then at the same time, as build understanding, okay, what needs to be done? What are the evolution? 
that the team needs to put in place and then reorganizing that way. And it worked. I think the team has been doing incredible work the past two years, despite the challenges. And I finally had my team together for the first time a week ago. Oh, wow. But I was lucky enough to have years of experience behind me. You know, that's the fantastic thing about aging. Mm-hmm. At least it means that you have the expands. And I worked in different companies. I worked with different clients and I worked in different countries. So I think I developed a muscle in being able to get the small signals on people and individuals. And I could also refer to some of the past experiences as well. And I think that really helped me to counter what COVID was stopping us from doing. Again, we were lucky to be in Switzerland. Switzerland was pretty good at making our life as easy as possible compared to other countries. There's sometimes this notion that it's lonely at the top. And so curious how you are navigating that in this role. And do you have sounding boards or support within the organization? Or do you look outside the organization for those things? I have to say, everybody, the whole management has really welcomed me. All the executive board members have given me all the time. Our CEO, Mark Schneider, has been fantastic as well as giving me the time that I needed. Also, I changed boss in my first eight months just to add to the complexities. <laughs> Why not? Let's just throw that in there too. <laughs> Patrice Bula, who hired me, made himself available the first few months. We used to spend at least an hour and a half in his office every week when I could ask every question. Also to get the history. So I could re-put different things into context and understand, you know, the history of it, which is really helpful in a company like Nestlé. And obviously, Bernard Meunier, my, my new boss, has been also a fantastic guiding light. So I've been really looking internally because I think the nature of the company is so different and so special. And I can always, of course, reach out to people from the outside and have some point of views. Really, what I needed guiding light a, a bit was also on the spirit, the DNA. And again, as I said, you know, some of the context of why certain things are being done that way right now, but sometimes would not make sense. Nestle has a history of working for a very long time with the same partners. I also had a lot of support from all our agencies who've been working with Nestle for years. And so they also provided me very nice, unfiltered point of views on what they think really works and what they think could be better, which has really helped me as well. As you said, just to have that space to ask the questions. And on one hand, you're coming in and wanting to demonstrate your leadership, but part of that is being vulnerable enough to ask the questions. And I think that's a key part of it. But sometimes we might second guess ourselves in that way because we should know it all when how possibly could we know it all? You're right. And I think it's one of the biggest mistakes we make is thinking that we shouldn't ask the question. Always better to ask a silly question. And that's okay. We can all survive looking stupid once in a while. But you gain so much. First, I think you learn a lot. You get a lot of information that you may never have otherwise. It also basically shows people you work with that you want their point of view. You want their knowledge. You want their expertise and their wisdom. And I don't think anybody doesn't want to be able to share that with anyone else. And it's very often underrated, actually, 
Absolutely. And I just think we have to give ourselves that permission more. There's a lot of talk about the changing archetype of the CMO and issues around data and technology, around the brand experience, innovation, sustainability, talent. It like really can be everything. And I'm curious, obviously, digital has been where you've really leaned in and brought in a way, those roles together. So it's like a chief marketing and digital officer. But if you were to take a step back and look around, what do you see as the most critical elements of being a successful CMO today? First, all the marketing fundamentals that I think have been forgotten a bit the past kind of 10 years. I think the rise of digital and digital platforms mean that everybody, and I fully understand why, got completely obsessed about digital media, data. You saw the rise of the CDO versus the CMO. And there was a point where it was, we don't need CMOs anymore, we need CDOs. And I think there's a real kind of boomerang effect happening right now. And I don't think it's one or the other. At the end of the day, we're here to build brands which are relevant for consumers, who are added value to the consumer. We need teams who understand what are the new products that our consumers would need or would like to be able to use. But it needs to be done in a context which is now digitally driven, where data is more and more important and complex. There are the things, what are the marketing fundamentals? What is your brand equity? What are your real consumer understanding, your consumer insight? And then how do you make sure that you build the right brand and the right message, and then you leverage that message in the right way in digital? And for me, that's the full funnel. And you can't separate it anymore. And I think that's what the CMOs need to be able now to manage because it is marketing. I always remind everybody that digital is the tools And so that's why I think the big kind of return to brand fundamentals, brand strategy, creative excellence, packaging design is key and need to regain the importance it had in the 90s and 2000s. Yeah, I think that to your point, there's a little bit of the best companies are newer, they're agile, they're digitally led, and they're breaking stuff and learning as they go. And I think that that makes sense. But I like to hear that you are seeing the fundamentals as important, if not more important than before. So I think that's a good piece of wisdom for people to keep in mind that digital is a tool and it isn't the strategy. No, it's not the strategy. You know, decided if you want to be on Instagram, YouTube and TikTok is not going to be the strategy. Right. It's, you know, what is going to be your brand equity which is going to make a difference. Do you have the right product, which is going to answer your consumer needs? And then is your messaging interesting, fresh enough to be able to cut the clutter? And that is the key and that's the heart. And that's also part of what makes marketing so interesting, Mm -hmm. especially at a time where we have more and more media because it's easier in a way to create a new brand and a new company than it was 20 years ago. So it means that there's more and more offerings as well. So being very tight and clear on what your brand stands for and how it's going to make a difference to your consumer lives. It's been more important than in the past where if you had a good product and you had enough money to have enough GRPs, it was already a big part of the recipe of the success. I think it's more complex today. 
And then, as you said, issues around sustainability and other things that people are really looking for companies to step up. We were talking earlier and you had mentioned there's been a shift in many cases to glass as far as packaging. And when the pandemic hit, there was a shortage of glass because of the vaccines and these kind of intricacies and the connectivity between all of this that makes it very challenging. Tell me a little bit more about the roadmap that you helped create and the things day to day that you're doing to try to move towards that vision in 2050. Yes, absolutely. So Nestle has been active on sustainability for years, simply because, for example, Nestle works with farmers. So obviously, the company understands the need to be able to ensure that we are going to be able to continue to grow nutritious ingredients so we can provide quality nutrition to everybody around the world. The big step was to establish a new roadmap for the next 25 years and to really decide, okay, There's been a big push, for example, on climate and on net zero. Then there's a big push coming on plastic. It's a lot of kind of an external push that, you know, really kind of heighten a certain issue and then put pressure down on all companies. And so suddenly what we wanted to do is think, okay, what is important to us, to the product we obviously produce and to our consumers where we can really make a difference? That's how we really kind of kick starting our 25 years roadmap, which is all kind of baked into regeneration, which is really important because regeneration is key when you work in the food industry. So it's all about regenerative agriculture and farmer livelihoods is extremely important. So it's how do we actually going to make sure that all our food systems are going to be better than today? And then it's how do you zoom out? And so that's why we have the plastic roadmap. We have a net zero roadmap, but we also decide to make clear commitments on communities and individuals. So we have launched a cocoa plan. We have a coffee plan with farmers. We work with 200,000 coffee farmers around the world. Wow. With 600 agronomists. And so what we do is, We really help them making sure that they're going to learn on how to manage water, for example, better, because we know there's a water scarcity. We're also going to make sure that we help them understand that if you are growing coffee trees, if you plant other trees between the coffee trees, it is going to give you better coffee. It's also taking care of the soil. And it's also going to create extra income because you can grow fruits, for example, among the coffee trees. So that's all the different practices that we are putting in place. And we're going to all the coffee farmers because it's very important. It's both for nature and for climate, but also for the livelihood of the communities. For example, to help stop child labor which can be a problem in some countries where family needs income. We have built a whole plan where we're paying a very fair price to the farmers, but we're also giving now 50% to the wife of the farmer. And so we know that when you do it that way, it really helps to have a balance in the family. And also it really helps to make sure that therefore the children continue to go to school. 
Wow. And it's painting the picture of, quote, sustainability in so many dimensions that I think most people don't really think about. And as a good pivot to a topic that I know you're very passionate about, as am I, around gender equity, both equity at home and equity in the workplace. You are a mom as well as an amazing leader in business. And you've said you've worked and lived in many different places around the world, but that everywhere it's the same story as it relates to equity. Tell me about that and tell me about some of the experiences you've had as a female leader in this world building your career. Yes, I've been lucky. I've been given so many amazing work opportunities and I've always got the support of my husband. When you start thinking of having children or you see your peers at the end of having children, you start to see them disappearing from the workforce. And very often it's because the financials don't work anymore. It's usually at the time in your career where you're in a soft spot, you start to get into more senior roles but they're not senior enough to be paying enough for all the costs that the career demands. You have long hours, you may be traveling. And so it means that you need to have the whole childcare organized. So you can be at the meetings and you can be traveling if you're being asked to. And very often that's where your compensation is sometimes a bit of a challenge for all the extra you need to be able to pay to be able to be available. And so that really saddened me to see some very, very talented young women who, when they were looking at the finances, thought it doesn't make sense. I would rather stay home and look after my children, which is wonderful if this is your choice. But when it's mainly driven by finance, I think it's a bit of a shame. Yes. And I've seen it indefinitely in the UK when I was in the UK. I've seen it in the US as well. Maybe a bit less in France because I think the country has a lot more social services and it's a bit more affordable. And I think it's something that we really need as we want more and more female leaders. We need both the governments and the companies need to be thinking about it because you shouldn't have to make a choice at a given point in your life. You need to be able to do it all. And that is something which I think we still haven't completely answered yet. I think it's still a challenge today. And we saw it during the pandemic. Huh? Yeah. There was the whole discussion of how many women left their jobs because suddenly they were the one who had to do the work and had to do the homeschooling and so on. There was something you said earlier about having it all and there had been long debates about whether women can, however you define that. Do you think that that's possible? Do you feel like you've achieved that? And any thoughts on how we can change things to get people to a place where they feel like they really can do both? I always say when I'm asked the question that you can't have it all at the same time. Yeah. So it means that you need to be very clear on what needs to take priority at a given time. Between the family and work, I didn't have time for anything else because, you know, I was working a lot. When I wasn't working, I wanted to be with the children. So going out was not something that I wanted to do. So I made choices at a certain time in my life. But I think when you're very clear of what you're trying to achieve, it helps because you know that you won't be able to do everything and that's okay. So I missed some key meetings or some key opportunities, but I knew at that time home needed to be the number one. And also I think don't obsess with the work-life balance. I don't think there's really a work-life balance. That's why when you're lucky enough to have a job which really interests you, gives you energy, 
make you feel like you're growing and you're learning every day and you're working with fantastic people and you have this personal life, which is also fulfilling you, then something, a day, a week, a month is going to balance itself. But it won't be a work-life balance of how many hours am I going to dedicate to which? Because that, I think, doesn't work either. I think that's so smart, taking the big picture view, understanding that there are choices, there are sacrifices, but as long as you're doing that with the understanding of what you really value and what you're really looking to do, it is possible. So I can go on forever, but I know that you've got a whole bunch of meetings after this. So I thought I would just end with a question that I ask all my guests. This is icons in the making. And truly, I do think that you are an icon in the work that you do working for amazing brands. But I'm curious, who is your icon? Oh, thank you. It's, it's really kind of you. My icon is a French architect and designer called Charlotte Perrion. She has done incredible work. She was born in 1903, and I think she died in 1999, I think. She was an extremely creative, modern architect and designer, and she was really focusing on creating functional living spaces because she believed that better design helped creating a better society. And so already the mix of artistry, creativity, at the service of function is something that I really believe. And I think it's the same when you work on brands. There's need to be a function to be relevant for the consumers, and then you need the creativity. This woman used to work for extremely well-known designers. And so she was working for their group. And so they were all men. And most of the famous pieces of furniture that they designed or even buildings that they designed were under their name and she was the brain behind it. Mm. So it was an interesting case of this fantastically talented woman, extremely forward thinking. And we didn't know that she was behind some of this creation. But for anybody who listens, you should go on Google and look at Charlotte Perrion. And you will see some of what she has designed and you will think, oh, I know that chair. I just didn't know it was her because uh, it was basically under the name of uh, Le Corbusier or uh, Pierre Genret, who were some of the very famous designers at the time. I love that. And we'll be doing the same. Take a page out of her book in terms of being a bit fearless and utilizing your talent in the best way. But with a twist of getting credit where credit is due and owning and celebrating your superpowers, which is something I think many, but in particular women have a hard time doing. So with that, thank you so much for your time and all of your insights. Also a special thanks to Emma Kofer, who is near and dear to, I know my heart, your heart at Lippincott, but oh, also yes. had been at Google and Nestle with you. And she connected us and I'm really grateful for that. Thank you, Heather. It was fantastic exchanging with you. Thanks for tuning in. If you liked what you heard, share with your colleagues and friends and subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. And if you're feeling really generous, leave us a five-star rating. Thanks, and I'll see you next time. Thank you.